Hello there, and welcome back to Peace In Their Time, episode 132, Sore Winners. Moving right along from Hungary, this week we're going to cover its most bitter rival, Romania. Picking back up from last season, Romania was riding as high as it ever would before the start of the Great Depression. Territorially, the country had expanded to meet every ambition its nationalists aspired to, with the strip of land known as Dobruja taken from Bulgaria in the southeast, Bessarabia in the northeast from Russia, and the crown jewel of Transylvania conquered from the Hungarians. All the Romanians that had found themselves left out of the core kingdom founded in the later 1800s had been brought into the fold. Politically and militarily, the nation was secure. The Hungarians and Bulgarians had been brought low and would need foreign sponsors to regain their lost territories, and the Soviet Union had more urgent priorities than reclaiming a distant province of the Tsars on its periphery. Not to say that any of these enemies were inclined to forgive and forget, far from it. But to ensure none of them returned for payback, Romania kept one of the larger standing armies in the region, and also directly aligned with Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia against their mutual Balkan rivals, while also aligned with Poland against the Soviets. Further afield, the Romanians kept up their friendship with France, and while relations fell short of a full alliance, French investment kept Romania in the orbit of the West. And for most of the 20s, it appeared as if Romania would continue with that orbit around the Entente. It helped that the country had a functioning liberal democracy of a sort, and their internal politics were a far cry from the disorders to their West and South. That being said, though, events by 1929 weren't all going Romania's way. Internally, Romania was coming to a crossroads. There weren't any new fields to conquer, no external enemies to lay low. There just wasn't a proper national mission anymore. Politics were as corrupt as ever, with the wealthy and powerful using their resources to build patronage networks that directed the votes of large segments of the population. This led to the government being overly influenced by the nation's landholders, and largely cut out the peasants from politics. This was important because the nation was still overwhelmingly rural, and poverty was widespread despite the productive agricultural sector. The main thing that prevented Romania from being a mirror image of Hungary in that regard was the fact that Romania had several other urban centers outside of its capital, Bucharest, which hosted a bit more industry than some of its neighbors, as well as possessing you know, a large oil industry that diversified its economy somewhat. So it wasn't all nobles in their big estates, but the problem was that regardless if a member of the elite came from the city or the countryside, they all looked upon the peasants as doubtful contributors to political life. Education had hardly been a priority for the government, another case where the elites preferred ignorant and compliant servants. 30% of the population was still illiterate, and even many of those who could read lacked the resources to keep themselves informed enough to, ha to have developed opinions on politics. The nation's liberals had managed to enact universal suffrage during World War I, but by the Great Depression, the political power was still wielded by the upper classes. This would actually prove to be destabilizing for the elites as the 30s dawned, because while they clung to power, the times were changing around them. Education did slowly improve throughout the 20s so that by 1929, people were a little bit more aware about how they were being exploited. Land reforms had also been promised, but were only partially implemented in the early 20s, a betrayal of a promise that the nation's king had made during World War I. 
The deal was simple. You go out and fight, you come back home to a new plot of land in your name. It was similar to the deal offered by the Italian government to their soldiers during World War I as well. In this case, the Romanian government did push a reform through, but the amount of land made available only partially fit the needs of the peasantry, which meant that within a few years, those peasants were renting out land from the big nobles in order to produce more and were once again politically dependent on them, which they certainly made a note of when considering their future loyalties. And a lot of the land doled out to the peasants came from the new territories, the new conquests, oftentimes at the expense of the minorities already living there. This was intentional, as it was part of a campaign by the Romanian government to break the power of those minorities. Speaking of which, those minorities really complicated national politics. The conquests after World War I had been grand, but a whole smorgasbord of ethnicities now cohabitated with the Romanian people. Indeed, a full 30% of the population by 1930 was non-Romanian, being split among a half-dozen ethnic groups. And while that meant Romanians were numerically secure overall, the minorities were clustered together, creating local majorities of their own. They were frequent targets of the Romanian government, who sought to suppress their schools and force them into cultural compliance with the rest of the nation. Owing to the state's lack of resources and other priorities, though, a determined effort could never really be made, which just resulted in the minority communities coming to despise their new government while maintaining their distinct identities. It was, all in all, a combustible situation where the two main political parties, the liberals and the national peasants, had largely squandered the government's legitimacy by the end of the decade. And it didn't help that they had a tendency to rewrite the constitution once in power to help rig future elections to go their way. But it actually wouldn't be the Depression entirely that sent Romania on a new direction, but also the intrigues of the royal family. Romania's monarchy was a cadet branch of the German Hohenzollerns, although that part of the family hadn't felt any pressure to side with their relations back in the old country. That being said, many in Romania, including among the elite, felt ambivalent at best towards their monarchs. They were heads of state and had real power, but they had to be respectful of the elites. It helped that the old king Ferdinand I was just that, respectful, and opted to keep peace with the nation's politicians. But Ferdinand had a son, a man named Carol. And Carol, well, he was something of a playboy. Like, that was his public image from his youth until his death, his entire life. He didn't even try to hide his partying lifestyle. Imagine the cliche of a decadent young princeling abusing his station for personal pleasures, and that would be him. For a slim moment, it looked as though his marriage to Princess Helena Greece would get him to settle down, but that was only for a slim moment, and Carol went right back to partying and sleeping around. He had a son with Helen, Michael, and to the newborn prince's grandfather, that's really all that was required of him. Carol, for his part, went way too far and started living openly with his mistress, one Magda Lupescu. The pair were a favorite of the early paparazzi around Europe, and their relationship was a public embarrassment. Carol's marriage with Helen understandably collapsed, eventually having a divorce finalized in 1928, and the commoner background of Lupescu, potentially even a Jewish background which was scandalous to the anti-Semitic Romanian elites, was such that Ferdinand stripped his son of his place in the secession. Carol would enter into foreign exile starting in 1925. 
the throne would supposedly pass instead to little Michael. And that would happen sooner rather than later, because Ferdinand died in July 1927. Michael was still a small child, almost six at the time, and a regency was set up and led by his uncle. The regency was a disaster. By the end of 1929, the nation was badly lacking in leadership, and the parliament was in chaos. The National Peasant Party had made grandiose promises towards land reform and had been swept to power with almost 80% of the vote in 1928. They had been the traditional enemy of the dominant Liberal Party, and the electoral win should have been a watershed moment for them. But then they turned around and sold way the hell out. The promises to the peasants were reneged upon, and public offices were doled out to a thin band of elites that had hijacked the party. By the first half of 1930, the government appeared on the brink of collapse. Then, in June 1930, Carroll took the initiative and returned to Romania. He was welcomed back by the prime minister at the time, Iuliu Maniu, of the National Peasants, on the condition that he break up with his mistress. Already in Bucharest, and immediately rallying the support of those disenchanted with Parliament, which was pretty much everybody, Carroll said no. He'd return to power and keep his mistress. Maniu simply shrugged, resigned, and on June 8th, Carroll was recognized as King Carroll II by Parliament. True to his character, Carroll really didn't have a plan. He was smart enough to know that he couldn't make himself a dictator like Alexander in Yugoslavia, and he contented himself with being at the center of a swirling array of interests and intrigues. He would play the two chief political parties against each other so that they competed for his favor, all the while denouncing them to the masses. Which was smart, because, for example, the National Peasant Party went from garnering 78% of votes in 1928 to just 9% in June 1931. The results weren't exactly a win for the liberals, though. The political parties were simply too discredited to act on their own and found themselves having to work through the king to attain legitimacy. To the peasants and urban proletariat, Carroll portrayed himself as their champion, a protector against the indifferent elites. He based his appeal on all manner of ideas, ranging from patriotism to traditionalism based both in old modes of living and the predominant orthodox faith, to simple populism. And as time went on, he embraced aspects of fascism more and more. He would set up fraternal organizations based on groups like the Black Shirts and Brown Shirts, but pointedly set up to serve him and not any greater ideology, as well as youth organizations based on the Hitler Youth. But again, set up to serve his interests as king, first and foremost. This was not a revolution, but it did make the monarchy a center of power that it had not been in the 20s and Carroll's leadership would be tested in new ways that his wartime reigning father had not. And he wouldn't do great. It turned out that the expansion of industry and heavy investment into the oil industry during the 20s wasn't enough to weather the coming storm after the end of 1929. 80% of the population still worked on farms, the overwhelming majority of which were non-mechanized. The global collapse in food prices tanked the broader economy, and Romania couldn't even engage in the kind of tariff warfare her neighbors engaged in because they depended so greatly on foreign loans for continued investment. If they wanted French money to keep coming in, they'd have to open their markets to them. And if they wanted to stay friends with their allies against hostile neighbors, well, that required quid pro quo agreements there, too. Incomes on average fell by half during the Depression, and the political leadership initially tried to just wait things out. Only when the longevity of the crisis became apparent did the state attempt direct intervention. The upshot of the foreign money still coming in was that the government did finally embark on a spending spree to invest in the nation's industrial sector. 
This pushed a trend that would see the urban population increase by a solid 15% by the end of the 30s, getting some of that excess labor off the farms and into the factories. Unfortunately, these investments would only come after the worst had already hit, and when people were already reduced to their most desperate. And naturally, the corruption of the state meant that the money benefited a select few in the business class the most, leaving those many Romanians without powerful connections to scamper after a means to escape poverty. In January 1933, strikes in the oil fields of Ploesti spread to Bucharest and from there turned violent, leading Carroll to make leadership shuffles to placate the ill will coming from the streets. And by that time, a new player had emerged, one uncomfortably independent of Carroll and the establishment. Cornelio Cadrianu hailed from northern Moldavia, a son of parents who had moved from the bordering Austro-Hungarian region of Bukovina to live in Romania proper. He grew up in a household dominated by intense Romanian nationalism, but was denied the chance to serve during World War I on account of being too young. He studied law in the city of Yashi, the old capital of Madavia, contenting himself with joining gangs who attacked striking workers. By 1923, he was active in the proto-fascist circles forming in Romania. I haven't mentioned the far right really up to this point because within Romania it was fairly weak during the 20s. The nation had expanded and its enemies were beaten. Communism had been firmly checked by the authorities without having to resort to new ideologies. There simply wasn't a pressing need for fascism by the nation's bourgeois. They had everything already. But it started coalescing here and there nevertheless, in this case on account of unaddressed social inequalities, arrested minorities, and especially in the case of Kadrianu and those like him, the state's failure to eliminate the Jewish minority in Romania. He was arrested for the first time in October 1923 for being part of an assassination squad of fellow young men who had traveled to Bucharest to murder several politicians and high-profile businessmen. Once in the capital, the group was immediately betrayed by one of their own. While in prison, Kadrianu mused over the idea of forming his own organization. He settled at that moment on abandoning political violence and forming something more akin to a social club to build the physical and mental fortitude of committed nationalists. Prison proved to be a non-issue, as he and his fellows were promptly acquitted of all charges. He returned to the countryside surrounding Yashi, and in May 1924, founded the Brotherhood of the Cross, drawing from the Orthodox faith to better appeal to normal people. A small following gathered around him, and they began the construction of a kind of uh, meeting hall outside of town for their planned gatherings. The authorities, though, had other ideas, and the Yashi police attacked the group, torturing several of them and scuttling plans for a nationalist self-help group. Knowing that he could not get his revenge through the courts, he decided to abandon his stance of nonviolence and return to Yashi and gun down the police prefect, Constantine Makiu. And this is where the severe corruption of the establishment really comes into play. The police prefect might have been connected with the liberals, but... The people of Yashi absolutely hated him, and the authorities came to the conclusion that Kadrianu would walk if a trial was held there. Or there'd be a riot, and then he'd walk anyway. He was shuttled to a town on the other side of the country, close to the Yugoslav border. The change in venue, though, didn't change things. Kadrianu was now a national hero for killing a high-profile cop, which really went to show how high the esteem was for authority figures at the time and the jury found him not guilty. He was momentarily triumphant, but the incident did not lead to political success. 
In fact, the nation's network of proto-fascist groups eventually collapsed after a dismal showing in the 1927 elections, leaving Kadrianu to reinvent himself again. This time, he wholly rejected electoral politics and founded what he envisioned would be a combat organization based on both religious and nationalist principles, the Legion of the Archangel Michael. It would come to be better known as the Iron Guard, but that would be a little later. The combination of nationalism and religion into a fascist mix harkens back to an old idea I introduced on fascism in episode 4, that one of fascism's strengths was blending elements to meet the zeitgeist of the day. And in this case, we actually get something a little unique to Romania, a genuine spiritual element. Yes, every fascist movement makes its peace with religion to some extent or another, but nowhere else was it embraced as a core concept to such an extent. For, say, the Nazis, exhortations to faith were tactical moves to induce support. For the Legion, it was part of the entire point of the ideology. To be a patriotic Romanian was to place oneself on the side of the righteous, not just in a secular sense, but a theological one as well. With national glory already achieved, the Legion would now offer a road towards salvation. In practice, the group advocated the liquidation of the national elites and redistribution of property to the peasants and workers, which, yes, they too drew perils between themselves and the Marxists. That is, except for the fact that their struggle would not be one centered around materialism, but social standing and simple respect. And also the heavy religious angle. And also the Legion's anti-Semitism, of which Kadrianu himself was such an extreme example that it was off-putting to other anti-Semites, which... That's never a good sign. The group also used different tactics from its equivalents in other nations. Eschewing the corrupt politics of the mainstream, Kadrianu organized his followers into what were termed nests. Uh, the image you're probably supposed to think of is bird-related, likely whatever bird of prey you might prefer that hails from the Carpathians. Uh, personally, my mind drifts more towards a hornet's nest when thinking of them, but I suppose I lack their perspective. These were small groupings of around 10 people who would act as a squad and whatever locale they held from. It could be a village, a collection of farms, a city street. They were small by design, and as a rule, if they ever recruited more than 13 members, they were supposed to split into two nests. Leaders would set the tone for the microgroup, but all were expected to support one another and keep in touch with Kadrianu at the center. They would agitate, undermine the local government, and if successful in attracting local support, they would turn the community to support the overall group. Membership was hard to achieve. The idea was for the organization to be an elite one, with its members totally committed to the cause. They adopted green shirts, and in addition to political activity, organized team-building activities like group hikes across the mountains and valleys of the nation to build their characters. And it turned out that's not the kind of political life people were looking for in 1927. The group wasn't popular for years, but Kadrianu stuck it out and kept the Legion going. His faith in the group and himself was rewarded when the Great Depression came. By the time the Depression started hitting Romania in the early 1930s, status quo politics had been mostly discredited. The two main parties, as I've laid out, were both corrupt as all hell and mistrusted by the majority of the nation. The left was a non-starter, as the scanty social democratic and communist presence was hounded by the state's security apparatus. And even the early fascists of the 1920s failed to exploit the new conditions of popular unrest on account of trying to appeal to a middle class that was never terribly strong in Romania. 
The weird grab bag of authoritarianism, nationalism, and Christian mysticism that the Legion offered turned out to be what the disaffected were looking for. Now, that isn't to say this translated to immediate political power. Far from it. The Legion was ill-equipped to participate in electoral politics, as you may have gathered when I described the hyper-splintered model the group took up. And during the elections in July 1931, the hasty political party set up as a front for the larger movement only ran campaigns in a handful of areas and netted only a little over 30,000 votes. Another election a year later was only marginally better, but did secure Kajuanu a seat in Parliament. This was all he needed, as he immediately set out publicizing the improper loans his new colleagues in Parliament had taken from the state coffers, loans which were obviously never meant to be paid back. He called for such men to be executed for their betrayal of the public trust, and suddenly the establishment had a very public problem on its hands. This is where Carroll comes back in the story, as he sensed the danger of a pack of militant mystics seeking to purify state corruption, a goal especially concerning, as he was the most corrupt statesman of them all. He had been shifting political support to and fro between the national peasants and the liberals, all the while using the Legion to scare them and their voters into compliance. But by the end of 1933, Carroll was ready to settle down with the liberals for a little while in order to set the stage for a bit of a purge. The Legion had simply grown too large to be kept around by 1933, and he enlisted the liberal leader, Ion Duca, to be his hatchet man. Duca accepted an appointment to prime minister in November 1933, which precipitated an election to confirm his government. On the evening of December 9th, just 10 days before the elections were set to begin, Duca deployed the troops. The Legion was formally banned, and a full 18,000 members were rounded up across the nation. Some fought back, and eight legionnaires died. Duca assured his partners in France and the UK that his activities were justified, as the Legion was a mere cat's paw for the still freshly empowered Nazi government in Germany, which led the West to let the incident go without comment. The Liberal Party won the elections with a slight majority through intimidation and corruption at the ballot box. Duca, though, paid the price for being the king's hatchet man, and on December 29th was himself gunned down on a train station by a trio of legionnaires. Kadrianu, for his part, went into hiding as the secret police tore the nation apart, looking for him. His associates were rounded up and tortured, but his whereabouts were never determined. The big rumor was that he found refuge with the cousin of King Carol's mistress, which was a Jewish family and ergo an odd choice for the bigoted Kadrianu. This might have been a rumor spread by his political enemies, especially his rivals within the Legion itself. It's also been theorized that he secured this refuge through threat of physical harm, basically holding his unlikely protectors at gunpoint to keep him safe. Whatever the case, when he reappeared in 1934, the situation had calmed and a military tribunal sympathetic to him, and it is important to note that the military was sympathetic to him, wound up finding him innocent of being involved in the Duca murder. This left him in an ambiguous position. He was a free man, but his political-slash-paramilitary group was banned. Other than again, it was still very much active in the underground, still a force to be reckoned with. And as the liberal policies of pumping state funds into industrial projects as a means to jumpstart the economy and escape the Depression enjoyed only their partial successes, still more people out in the countryside left out of the new government's investments felt more and more alienated from the state. And like the desperate and downtrodden before them over the past several years, they turned towards the Legion, ban or no ban, 
Kadrianu wouldn't suffer existing on the fringes for long, as Daku's replacement as Prime Minister, Georga Todorescu, decided to take a U-turn in relations with the Legion, with Carol's support. Both men figured that they had shown well enough who was in charge and didn't want to provoke a civil war in the future. So, the repression of the Legion was lifted, and Kadrianu was again allowed to operate freely, with the caveat that he should understand the force that could come down on him should he challenge Carol's position. Carol was evidently not a man to bear grudges when he thought himself in a superior position. And 1934 would be kind of a turn-of-the-page time for Romania. The investments in industry would start to bear some fruit, the economy would enjoy a modest upswing, and the complete discrediting of the democratic system would allow Carol to inch closer to establishing a royal dictatorship. The Legion, though, would be right there in his shadow, growing in strength and drawing support from those left out of the recovery whom numbered in the millions. Gadrianu might have been checked a little bit, but he wasn't out. I will leave Romania here for now, inching out of its economic crisis, but sure to enter a period of instability birthed by that trauma. The remainder of the 30s would see a continued drift towards authoritarianism, a renewed conflict between the king and the legion, and an expansion of the nation's military power to meet the growing dangers surrounding the kingdom. That last part, coupled with the nation's oil reserves, would make Romania one of the most courted partners by both sides in the coming conflict, which will all be topics you can look forward to later in the season when we return to the Legion one last time before the general crisis gets out of control. Because as long as the delicate balance of the Versailles system held fast, then Romania was basically secure. Being courted by both France and Germany held the promise of economic investment while also being able to avoid making damaging commitments to both which was a game that progressively got more and more dangerous as time went on. Next week, we'll be moving on to the last stop in Central Europe, a joint episode on Poland and Czechoslovakia. I won't be going back to the Baltics or Finland just yet, as I'll admit I don't have enough material to really fill out a new episode, but I'll probably do little small check-ins somewhere during the season. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.